0: Good afternoon. This is Judge Dorsey. We're on the record in FTX Trading Limited, case number 22-11068. This is a status conference, I believe. I'll go ahead and turn it over to debtor's counsel. (laughs) Anybody? Mr. Landis.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, Adam Landis from Landis, Rath & Cobb uh, here on behalf of the debtors. Uh, As Your Honor noted, we're here for the pretrial of the status conference regarding the estimation of claims uh, filed by the United States Department of the Treasury. Um, I would uh, hand over the virtual podium to uh, Mark Kalu and my uh, Sullivan Cromwell colleagues uh, to present uh, argument today.
0: Okay, thank you. You're muted.
1: Apologies, Your Honor. Good afternoon. Uh, Your Honor, Mark DeLue from Sullivan and Cromwell. Uh, This is my first time uh, appearing before you, even if remotely. It's a pleasure to be before you. Uh, If Your Honor uh, likes, I would present on the burden of proof issue that the parties have submitted in briefs, and then uh, after the parties have discussed the proof issue, we're happy to talk about discovery, although I think the parties are largely in agreement uh, on those subjects. Okay. Go ahead. Thank you, Mr. Court. Um, It's worth looking back at why the court asked for additional briefs on the burden of proof issue that were ultimately submitted on January 5th. As Your Honor recalled, back last year, the debtors submitted a motion seeking an estimation hearing. Uh, In its objection, the IRS raised the issue of burden of proof, arguing that the debtors had the burden of proof. In our reply brief filed back in December, We explained why that issue, why that argument was wrong, why uh, the debtors didn't in fact have the burden of proof, the IRS had the burden of proof. In fact, uh, because they had submitted an unexplained and unsupported claim, they weren't entitled to the presumption of validity under bankruptcy law, and because it was not an assessed claim under tax law, the, uh, the IRS was not entitled to a uh, presumption of correctness under underlying tax law. Uh, we submitted that brief on our reply, uh, you, and Your Honor, at the hearing in December, understandably recognizing that this burden of proof issue had only been joined in our reply, wanted to give the IRS a chance to respond to our arguments and uh, give the parties a chance to put in briefs uh, on this point the parties agreed that they would submit uh, supplemental briefs on this point on January 5th, nearly a month later. So both parties had the opportunity to look the law that had been cited in the briefs back in December, to look at the cases that were cited, to look at the arguments that both sides had made, and then respond accordingly uh, to raise the issue with Your Honor. But in fact, What the IRS did in its January 5th brief is not respond at all to any of the arguments made by the debtors in its reply brief. They didn't respond to any of the cases that the debtors cited. They didn't say that we had misdescribed any of the cases we cited. They didn't say that we had misdescribed or mischaracterized any of the cases that the IRS had cited that we explained didn't support the propositions that the IRS was arguing. They just simply recited the same law that they had cited back in their objection and then they argued quite a bit about a uh, statutory section 26 U.S.C. 7491, a provision on which the debtors have never relied and I'll explain a little while later is not really relevant to what we're doing here. So it seems as if the the IRS had anything to say about the law or arguments that were raised back in the brief in uh, December, the IRS would have Included that in their brief in January. Having done so, I think uh, it's apparent that the IRS had nothing to say, and with apologies for the cliche, uh, the IRS's uh, uh, silence speaks volumes here. Uh, so, with that as background, Your Honor, I'd like to go through the three uh, points that ra- were raised in our brief and will respond to uh, an argument made about 7491 in the IRS's brief. And then I think uh, I'd make just a few observations about how I think this issue really plays out in this estimation proceeding. So first I'll briefly discuss the bankruptcy presumption of validity, which I think is largely beside the point here, but I'll I'll briefly address that. And then I'll I'll, I'll address the uh, presumption of correctness and why the IRS is not entitled to a presumption of correctness because it has not issued an assessment under underlying tax law. And even if the IRS was to issue, an assessment under regulatory guidance, uh, that claim would not be entitled to a presumption of correctness because uh, it would be naked and arbitrary and excessive. And therefore, under well-settled law, it would not be entitled to a presumption of correctness. And therefore, the IRS bears the burden of proof for many reasons. So we'll start very briefly on the presumption of validity uh, in bankruptcy law. Rule 3001 usually provides that uh, the filing of a claim provides a presumption of validity to that claim. All that means is that the claimant has made out a prima facie case that satisfies its burden of going forward. But as we explained back in our brief in December and again in our brief in January, uh, not every claim uh, entitles a claimant to a presumption of validity. An unexplained claim without any explanation or support wouldn't give a presumption of validity. We cited the mobile manufacturing case for that proposition. Again, the IRS didn't respond. Uh, but in any event, as I, as I said, the presumption of validity only goes to the burden of going forward, and that can be, once there's a, a burden met for going forward, the debtors can respond by providing their own evidence, and then the issue is joined, and when the, the real question is about the burden of proof on the merits. And so uh, in the course of this proceeding, we expect the IRS has, has provided interrogatory responses which provide some explanation for a new claim. Now it's $8 billion. Your Honor may recall we started with $43 billion for the IRS claim, then it was re- amended to $24 billion and now it's $8 billion. We, we We believe all of these are arbitrary, excessive, irrational, choose your adjective but um, in any event the IRS at least tried to explain what they're talking about now um, obviously the debtors have put in detailed tax returns schedules uh, they have t- they have the ability to testify have accounts testify uh, and respond to information disclosure requests so I think your honor will ultimately conclude that the issue has been joined and therefore what we're really talking about is the burden of proof on the merits, which is really what both sides have, have focused on in their briefs. Both parties agree that burden of proof on the merits is dictated by the underlying tax law. That's the Raleigh decision from the Supreme Court. Uh, Raleigh holds that the underlying law is what supplies the burden of proof. Here, that's tax law. So that brings me to my second question, which is, who has the burden of proof Uh, uh, under underlying tax law. As both parties observe, in the typical IRS tax case, the IRS is entitled to a presumption of correctness that shifts the burden of proof over to the taxpayer. Um, But that's only because the IRS has made a formal assessment of the tax under its regulation. And that's what shifts the burden. If it hasn't made an assessment, it's not entitled to shift the burden, and the burden remains on the IRS, which is asserting a claim. Many courts have made this very point. For instance, in a case I'm almost surely going to pronounce, it's Anastasato from the Third Circuit. Uh, The Third Circuit said that, quote, the government's deficiency assessment is generally afforded a presumption of correctness. That's 794 F2nd at page 886. The Third Circuit again made this point in a case called SATI, P-S-A-T-Y. The Third Circuit held that, quote, the certification of the IRS commissioner's assessment shifts the burden of proof. That's 442 F2nd at 1159. Uh, The Tenth Circuit in the March decision actually explained the reasoning for this rule the Tenth Circuit said, quote, the regulations governing the assessment process serve to ensure both the efficiency and the accuracy of the IRS process. Uh, That's 335 F3rd at 1188. And we set out in our uh, brief, very briefly, the regulatory process that the IRS needs to follow to do a formal assessment, something called a notice of deficiency. Uh, And there's no dispute here that the IRS has not done a formal assessment or a notice of deficiency pursuant to its regulation. In its recently served interrogatory bounces, we just got them on, on Friday, the IRS says explicitly these are estimates and it has not issued a notice of deficiency it would only come at the end of an examination when the estimates may change if more information is learned. So we all agree there's no assessment that has been issued by the IRS. And as I just stated, the law that we've provided uh, holds clearly that it's the IRS assessment pursuant to the regulations that shifts the burden from the uh, IRS to the taxpayer. So what does the IRS say about all this? Remember, this was a point that was made in our reply brief in December. We explained that an unassessed tax claim is not entitled to to, uh, shift the burden of proof. The IRS says, Literally nothing did not cite any, did not explain why we were wrong in our December briefs. They didn't explain what cases we had cited that were wrong or respond to our cases. They literally put in the same cases that they cited back in December. So what cases have they cited? Well, the lead case that they cite, it's on page four. They cite it prominently as a case that allows them to do an estimate, is Greco versus United States. It's a Pennsylvania District Court decision. Here's what Greco says. Quote, the presumption of correctness arises when the IRS submits a certification of the commissioner's assessment or an affidavit signed by an IRS officer detailing the tax liability. That's at 380, that's 380 F sub second at 611. The Greco decision actually cites for that proposition, the Third Circuit's decision in SATI, case I mentioned earlier. Again, SATI makes this very same point. It says the following, long quote, but several different places in the decision. The presumption of correctness afforded the commissioner's determination allows the government to establish a prima facie case of liability merely by offering into evidence a certified copy of the commissioner's assessment. Little later on, the machinery prescribed by Congress to determine the amount due to the government is the assessment of the administrative agency charged with its collection. Little later on, we hold, therefore, that when the government offers in evidence the certification of the commissioner's assessment in support of the counterclaim, the presumption of correctness operates to place upon the taxpayer both the burden of going forward and the burden of persuasion. That's 442 F second at 11.59 to 11.60. So all all these cases stand, that the the IRS has cited, stand for the same proposition. The IRS needs to go through its regulation and issue an assessment in order to shift that burden of proof, to have that presumption of correctness. The other case on which the IRS relies most prominently is US versus Isley, the Isley Brothers case. Uh, It's a non presidential opinion. That case involved actually two assessments by the IRS. The IRS issued uh, issued a first assessment, and then they actually, and the IRS points this out in their brief, it issued an amended assessment. And even at that, the Third Circuit said that the presumption of correctness, which was attached to the assessment, was, quote, very weak in this case because of the IRS's restatements of its computation. That's 203 Federal uh, Appendix at page 409. So there, there's two different assessments, and even at that, the Third Circuit says it's a very weak presumption. So there's only one case that's cited by the IRS that it didn't have a formal assessment. That's the Fidelity American case that the IRS cited, both in its December brief and then again in its January brief. And in our brief, in our reply brief back in December, we explained why the Fidelity America case doesn't apply here, didn't actually hold, didn't even decide the question of whether uh, the IRS is entitled to a presumption of correctness when there's been no formal assessment. And in any event, isn't applicable here. Again, the IRS never responded. They knew we were addressing directly one of the prime cases they they had cited. Again, didn't respond. As we explained in both our December brief and our January 5th brief, um, fidelity was decided at a time, um, it was 1990, At that time, the IRS was prohibited by the uh, automatic stay from issuing uh, an assessment against a debtor that was already in bankruptcy. At that point, there was no uh, provision that allowed the IRS to issue an assessment. The law changed in 1994 and allowed the IRS to issue a deficiency notice or an assessment. And so in that case, the the rationale, or at least the argument was, well, Because the IRS can't issue an assessment, perhaps we should give this advantage in bankruptcy to give their calculations the presumption of correctness. But as I said, that's no longer the law. Now the IRS can issue a a notice of deficiency or official assessment uh, in bankruptcy, and uh, the IRS hasn't done so. Uh, In any event, the Fidelity American case, as I said, didn't decide this issue. Um, what the Fidelity American case said was we, uh, the court said it ex- doubts about whether a presumption should apply where there's been no pre-petitioned IRS tax assessment. That's 1990 Westlaw 299-418 at page 6. And it, it, it went on to not decide the question because what the court found was that the IRS claims there were arbitrary and excessive. So it didn't need to decide the question of whether there was a presumption anyway. Um, All this brings me to my third question. If the IRS did issue a formal assessment or notice of deficiency, it still wouldn't be entitled to a presumption of correctness, because uh, the uh, formal assessment, if it were to be these $8 billion worth of claims that the IRS now argues about, those wouldn't be entitled to a presumption of correctness, because that would be a naked claim that's arbitrary and excessive. Under Supreme Court and Third Circuit law, clearly naked and arbitrary and excessive claims uh, are not entitled to a presumption of correctness, and so the IRS continues to have the burden of proof. And that law clearly applies here. Uh, Your Honor, I I recognize the word naked assessment sounds like it's a very, very extreme situation where you just put down a number and there's nothing else. It's not really as extreme as all that. What a naked assessment means is that it's not supported by evidence that connects the taxpayer to specific sources of income. Um, So for instance, the Third Circuit, in that case I can't pronounce, Anastasato, uh, the presumption, the Third Circuit said the presumption only applies if the deficiency assessment is supported by foundational evidence connecting the taxpayer with the tax-generating activity. That's at page 887. In short, the IRS needs to come up with some logical evidence that connects the taxpayer's profits to its tax assessment. It can't just say it's up to the taxpayer to prove the negative. Uh, it didn't make, You didn't make any profits. You go prove that. Um, the, the IRS needs to come up with some reasoned basis based on the taxpayer's records and, and the actual business of the taxpayer. It can't just say, well, there's a huge amount of money flowing through the entity, and so therefore we're including all that money as profits, you tell us why that's wrong. Here's another case where um, the court found a naked assessment. Uh, the Kohler case, written by Judge Posner in the Seventh Circuit. It's another good example. In that case, the taxpayer had purchased Mexican denominated bonds. And those bonds were gonna be purchased by, the, uh, by Mexico, the government. Uh, in pesos, but those pesos were going to have certain restrictions. could only invest those pesos into certain government uh, projects that were approved by the government. You couldn't, uh, you couldn't uh, exchange those pesos into dollars for some number of years. And those restrictions clearly would have an impact on the value of the pesos that the taxpayer would receive. Instead of trying to determine what the appropriate discount was, the value of those pesos. The IRS just just assessed the value as the full value of the pesos. And what Judge Posner Posner said is that assessment is naked and therefore uh, the IRS's claims need to be rejected. Because the IRS had provided no evidence linking the valuation that it had done to the actual state of affairs. It said, uh, look, the the IRS could have come up with a prima facie plausible number or had some evidence explaining what the discount was. Instead it just relied on the full value of those pesos and it was not entitled to do that uh, and so therefore it was a naked assessment. Um, Separately, although it's related, courts have also uh, held that arbitrary and excessive claims are not entitled to the presumption of correctness. And again, those courts have made clear that what the IRS needs to do is come up with some reasoned basis connecting the taxpayers' records and its business for the claimed tax liability. Can't just throw out big numbers and say you prove to us that it's wrong. Uh, There's no dispute, I believe, between the parties that the IRS can estimate tax liability in the appropriate circumstances, but it needs to connect that to the uh, taxpayers' records, to leads drawn from those records, or the taxpayer's actual business and state of affairs. It can't just again throw out big numbers and say you proved the opposite. So here's an example of what the IRS can do and that was supported by, was affirmed by the Supreme Court. Uh, The United States versus Florida Taliot case. Uh, In that case, the IRS found that the FICA taxes that had been withheld by the taxpayer uh, for the employees' picks understated the amount of tips that uh, were shown on credit card slips. So the IRS saw, hey, you're, you're, S- you're providing a FICA withholding for employee tips, but the credit card slips show a significantly higher number. So the IRS then did an assessment and came up with a larger FICA withholding number. And what did it do? It did something called an aggregate estimation method. What it did was it, it looked at the, at the taxpayer's credit card slips and came up with an average uh, tip amount for each year. So it went through 1991 was 14.5%, 1992 was 14.9%, and then it used those, percent, those tip percentages to, a set, to estimate the amount of tips the employees had received for both credit cards and for cash on an aggregate basis. And the Supreme Court said, that is sufficient. You've used the taxpayer's records. You've connected it in a reasonable, logical way to an estimate. That's the kind of assessment the IRS has discretion to make. It can use the taxpayer's records and reasonable leads from the records to, prevent, to get a logical and reasonable estimate of the tax, taxpayer's profit. What it can't do, as I've been saying, is just take the biggest number it can find the biggest revenues that come in, the biggest numbers that come in, and then say it's up to you, the taxpayer, to prove that these are not profits or to say all of your uh, deductions or all of your losses are zero because unless you prove otherwise, we assume all of your losses are zero. Um, The fidelity case, again, this is a case cited by the IRS. It's another very good example here. In fact, the factual circumstances of fidelity are strikingly like what we have here, at least as the IRS presents it. Um, In fidelity, the parties all agree that there was a substantial lack of, there was missing documentation from the debtors. Um, There had been uh, embezzlement by the debtors, now it was being uh, managed by the trustee. The debtors uh, had, had, Done away certain amount of documents before they uh, before the company went bankrupt. The remaining documents were disorganized, no question about it, and all agreed that the likely reason for this state of affairs, missing and disorganized documents, were that the debtors were trying to hide their embezzlement, their prior embezzlement. So that's exactly what the IRS says is true here, and there's some amount of agreement between the parties. We agree that they're there's a, a disorganized state of certain records. There's not no records, there's a substantial amount of records, but there are missing records somewhere, and there's some disorganized records. Our accountants, appointed by Your Honor, have gone through those records and tried to come up with the best and most logical numbers. And when there's a missing number, they try to, they try to come, uh, use the existing records to calculate the right number. Well, in any event, in the Fidelity case, what the IRS did was simply assumed that the taxpayer had made the same amount of profits as it it had in prior years where there was full record. And the court rejected this, said that was arbitrary and excessive, and and concluded that the IRS was not entitled to a presumption of correctness and therefore rejected the IRS claims. The court said, look, we understand that the IRS is entitled to use any reasonable means to reconstruct a taxpayer's income but that reasonable needs must include investigation of reasonable leads furnished by the taxpayer. Uh, it's, it, it, uh, it, it noted that the IRS is not entitled to calculate its, ma- its assessment, quote, in any manner its agents chose. And it actually cited the Third Circuit as in a statement that I think is absolutely applicable here. The absence of adequate tax records, as in the case here, does not give the commissioner carte blanche for imposing draconian absolutes. So having failed to uh, uh, review the available information, having failed to use actual uh, information provided by the debtors to come up with reasonable estimates instead of just using absolute numbers, having failed to match it to the actual business of the taxpayer, the IRS's claim was rejected in the Fidelity case, And, and that applies exactly to what we're talking about here. The IRS has extreme claims. On each facet of its claim, what it does is it just takes the extreme number from whatever documents it can find uh, that have been provided, or the full amount of potential income, or minimum amount of potential loss, and says, those are the numbers, unless you prove otherwise. Um, But putting aside, I mean, this is obviously illogical to say that the debtors $8 billion in taxes, which would be, you know, uh, uh, multiple billions more in income profits over this period. All agree that putting aside the fact that many of the debtors aren't even U.S. taxpayers, the the debtors were only in existence for a few short years, and there was really only any significant amount of revenues coming in in the last year or two. And as we know, since we're all in bankruptcy, the debtors lost billions of dollars. And that's pretty clear from the state of affairs. So there's just no rational connection between the idea uh, that the debtors owe $8 billion in taxes for some, you know, $20, $25 billion of, of profit for an entity, for entities that lasted for only a few short years and clearly lost billions of dollars. So. Uh, before I move on to the uh, observation of, I think, how this is going to play out, just somebody, I would just like to respond to one argument made in the IRS's brief. Uh, the IRS spent a fair amount of time, you can see this on page one, page four and five of their brief, arguing about 26 USC 7491, uh, because they, they refer to the credible evidence standard in ex-statute and certain record-keeping requirements of that statute. Debt, the debtors have never requested burden shifting under se- Section 7491. Section 7491 is, uh, applies to individual taxpayers and to entities that are worth less than $7 million. Uh, because the IRS has never made an assessment of tax pursuant to its regulation and any assessment it has now uh, would be naked and arbitrary and excessive. There's no burden to shift, so we don't even need to get into the question of section 74 and 91. Uh, and, and that's the ob- same kind of observation. We cited this case, the trans-support case, uh, it, that the First Circuit noted uh, the burden-shifting exercise under 74 and 91 entirely different than the burden-shifting s- scheme for an arbitrary and excessive claim. So these are just two different burden-shifting exercises, debtors have not claimed burden-shifting under 7491. So these arguments about credible evidence and record-keeping and so forth, those just are not relevant to the issues here today. So uh, Your Honor, to go back to sort of where the law is and how I think this is going to apply. The law is clear. Uh, The IRS had a chance to respond to it, to cite cases that said we were wrong, to respond to our cases. Uh, Under settled law, because the the IRS had not issued a formal notice of assessment or notice of deficiency under its regulatory requirements, uh, it's not entitled to a presumption of correctness and therefore retains the burden of proof. And even if the IRS were to do a formal assessment, any assessment for the multi-billion dollar claims that the IRS seems to be asserting here, would be naked and arbitrary and excessive and therefore not entitled uh, to the presumption. As we've engaged with the IRS and we've uh, talked through uh, some of the issues and looked at the interrogatory responses that the IRS recently served, I, I, I can I think I can now see how this issue really plays out in this case. Um, there's a difference between the, what the IRS does in its audit process and an assessment that can hold up in court. In in the IRS's audit process, what it does is it assigns the maximum number to any any number it uh, finds in the taxpayer's uh, returns or records, or the minimum number, depending on whether you're talking about revenues or losses. And then it says, you prove to us why those numbers are not the maximum amount of profits and the zero of, of losses. So just by way of example, if an investment bank were to, were to trade $10 trillion worth of securities for its customers, and the $10 trillion comes into the investment bank, and then's traded, and then, of course, value comes out, the IRS in an audit procedure would say that $10 trillion, that's income, unless you show us that that's actually third-party uh, uh, assets and in fact, that it's matched up to trading uh, that goes out of the company. You need to prove to us that that's not your $10 trillion. In fact, you only made commissions of $100 million or whatever the number would be. And then, uh, relatedly, the IRS would say, all the money flowing out, that's not not a tied loss, and all of your deductions, all of your losses for trading losses and all of your expenses are all zero until you show us evidence that supports that these numbers are not zero. That may be a perfectly rational uh, way to proceed in an audit that takes several years. Uh, I don't offer an opinion one way or the other whether that's right or not as a matter of audit procedure, but that's not what the law demands for an assessment or even here a calculation, an estimate of the IRS's claims. The court in March needs to adjudicate an estimate of the IRS's claims. It can't It has to deal with the IRS's claims as they exist. We're not a two or three year period where we can just go through a process of matching up every $10 trillion number and proving why that's not in fact processed. The, the, under well settled law, the IRS has to come up with an assessment in order to shift the burden of proof. If it doesn't, it has the burden of proof to show why its tax claims are reasonable based on reasonable leads uh, and are matched up to the debtor's actual uh, business. Uh, unless the IRS makes that kind of assessment that's connected to the taxpayer's actual business, it's not sufficient for the IRS to say, you haven't proved the negative to it. You haven't proven that these this huge number isn't income. You haven't proven that this amount isn't loss is 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 losses. So the IRS needs to, because it hasn't issued an assessment, and it's not entitled to shift the burden of proof. Come up with a reasonable estimate calculation based on the actual records of the taxpayer, leads from those records, and or connection to the real business and actual revenues and profit generation of the business. It can't just say we see these huge amounts of numbers coming in. Uh, to the debtors because you were trading for customers, and so therefore we are uh, we are uh, assuming the most extreme numbers and we're leaving it up to you to prove the negative. So unless the court has any questions, uh, for the remainder will just rely on our papers.
0: Thank you. No questions at this time, thank you. Ms. Bruce? Good
2: afternoon, Your Honor. Um,
0: First, uh, we would just like to note that from our perspective, the um, primary. Hold on. Let's remove them from the, uh, someone was, uh, speaking with their microphone on, sorry, go ahead, Ms. Bruce. Thank you, Your Honor.
2: Yes. Well, we believe the, the primary purpose of the, the briefing was to address the specific issue of whether the estimation hearing and the procedures that we are now in the process of in any way changes the longstanding case law regarding the burden of proof. Um, and as we cited in our our, piece, it, it, it does not. Um, so the, the estimation hearing does not change the fact um, that the burden of proof that exists in when a substantive tax law is at issue, still applies here. Um, Touching first on the issue of the presumption of validity, the IRS did everything that was required under Rule 3001 to establish the presumption of validity. It was not unclear what its claim was for. It was for income taxes and employment taxes. It did not just list a number with no description whatsoever. And the debtors never asked us for more details before coming to this court and asking for these estimation procedures. But that being said, it seems that the debtors agree that the issue is moot at this point because the IRS has provided more than enough detail um, regarding exactly what its claim is constituted uh, um, consists of. Uh, So it seems that that issue is is moot at this point. Um, on the merits of where the burden of proof lies, the case law it's very clear that the burden of proof lies on the taxpayers, because they are the ones that have the information. Um, there is not an even 50-50, the IRS has some information, the taxpayer has the rest, and they go back and forth, like the debtors keep indicating. The taxpayers are the ones with the information and with the burden to substantiate their numbers. The debtors are correct that the IRS has not made an assessment yet. And they haven't made an assessment yet because the audit is still ongoing. And because they've come and asked for this estimation hearing in the middle of an audit process. So they can't now ask Your Honor to estimate this claim and then also complain that there is no assessment. If there was an assessment, we wouldn't be having this estimation here. And the question now is, how does the burden of proof fall in an estimation hearing? We cited multiple cases in the Third Circuit where the courts held that even where there was not an assessment, even when there was an estimate, the IRS is still entitled to the burden of proof. Now, as the debtors pointed out in many of those cases, an assessment was made, but that's because those cases were refund cases and collection cases. So, of course, assessments had ultimately been made, but the court's holding that even estimates are not entitled to the burden of, um, are entitled to the presumption of correctness, is still valid. And that's what the court should look to in this case for purposes of this estimation hearing, which is um, a very uh, uncommon proceeding. But those those cases are still good and, and should be binding in this instance. Again, The the IRS could issue a notice of deficiency if the debtors want them to, but they've asked the court to address the matter through this estimation hearing. It can't have both things. It can't have the IRS make an assessment and then also have your honor estimated through this hearing. Those those two things are inconsistent. Addressing their um, argument that this is a naked assessment. Naked assessments involve assessments where the income cannot be connected to the assessment. That is not at all what we have in this case. Here, the assessments are connected to the debtor's income. Just like in Fiordi Italia, the IRS has a foundation for its estimates. It started with the debtor's tax returns and made adjustments to those returns. It asked the debtors to substantiate the deductions claimed on those returns, and the debtors did not do so. Despite the IRS asking them to, they have failed to substantiate them. And you're even heard at the last hearing when we spoke with the debtors um, representative for me and why, they don't have the support. So they have made it clear to the IRS that they are not able to substantiate the expenses. Uh, the IRS assessments are further based on information that from the criminal trial regarding evidence of misappropriated funds that flow through the company. Um, the debtors, again, have not challenged those facts. So there is a foundation for the IRS's assessments. To call them naked assessments is not an accurate representation at all. Um, and it wasn't accurate at the beginning of these proceedings, and it certainly is not accurate now when um, we have provided to the debtors detailed calculations, detailed explanations, um, of the amounts and the um, the calculations that the IRS has provided. Again, they are not assessments because of how the debtors have done this this process. So they, they brought us into court in the middle of an audit um, and, and asked uh, your honor to estimate the amounts. That's why there is not an assessment. But given where we are at the stage of the proceedings, the IRS has um, certainly gone far and above uh, what, what would be involved with a naked assessment. Um, and the burden of proof at this point is on the taxpayers to prove up their deductions and to um, explain why the activity that the IRS has evidence of is not should not be income to the company. The burden is on them to do that. They have all the information, and they need to provide it if they have it. Um, case law is very clear on that, Your Honor, and we don't think that just because we're here for an es- estimation hearing that the case law should in any way be inapplicable. Um, I'm happy to answer any specific questions Your, Your Honor has, but otherwise we would rest on our arguments here today and our brief that we filed.
0: Okay. Thank you, no, no questions. Zillow, rebuttal?
1: Sure, Your Honor. I, I, I'll be brief. Um, I, I think a few points in response to Ms. Bruce. Ms. Bruce said, I think she made it, spoke, um, as she was making the argument, she said, we've cited multiple cases where there were no assessments made. Um, but then she said later on, so I think she corrected herself, but in those cases, we agree assessments were made. In fact, in those cases that uh, the IRS has cited, all the cases that they've cited, except for that one that I talked about where the court didn't decide the issue, an assessment was made by the IRS. And there are cases, many, many cases that I've cited that talk about the fact that it's the assessment that creates, that uh, uh, that it gives rise to the presumption of correctness. The Janus case from the Supreme Court, the Anastasato, the Patti case, the Greco case and the Isley case, all the cases that were cited by the IRS, all of those mention, explain that it's the IRS's assessment, notice of deficiency, that gives rise to this presumption of correctness. And so in the absence of presumption of correctness, we don't say that therefore the IRS immediately loses. It's just that the IRS is not entitled to that presumption, and therefore it bears the burden of proof.
0: Me ask you, uh, let me ask you a question about and, and address Ms. Bruce's argument that uh, uh, the IRS would, uh, would do a, an audit and would then present an assessment uh, in the due course, but because the debtors have asked for an es- estimation of the claim on an expedited basis, they can't do that.
1: Well there's, there's two things um, I would say, well actually three. First, we've been doing this for quite some time. Bruce said, well, we didn't ask for an explanation. I can assure, Your Honor, that my partner in the tax group and Ernst & Young have been engaged with the IRS's tax group and the lawyers for the IRS, the DOJ, for months trying to work through these details. So it's not as if this all all of a sudden happened. In, in November when we asked for an estimation hearing, we've been trying to engage for a long time. That's well, number I, well, one. I understand
0: that, but it's, yep. you know, the, I know from experience uh, that, you know, a, a, an audit of a company of this size, especially when there's fraud involved, is going to take more than a, than a matter of months. It's going to take years.
1: I, I, I understand, Your Honor, and so two, that leads to the two other points I would, I, I would, one, Um, this is a surprising argument from the IRS because the IRS actually says in its own brief that uh, the the burden of proof doesn't change just because it's an estimation procedure. This is on page three of their brief. They say, in an estimation procedure, the court is bound by legal rules which may govern the ultimate value of the claim. So the rules don't change just because we're in an estimation proceeding. That's number two. But the the number three is the point I think I made, I, I was trying to make before, which is, We don't say that just because the IRS is not entitled to the presumption of correctness, that the IRS therefore loses. That's the end, we can all go home. All this means is, as Fortrick said many times, that the IRS has to prove its claim just like any other claimant. And the court is estimating the claim. So in some sense, it doesn't need to prove its claim with exactitude, it needs to prove it has the burden of proof to show what an appropriate claim is and the court can take the evidence with the IRS uh, providing whatever evidence it has. And the debtors will submit evidence. And the IRS has the burden of proof. And that's what, that's what courts have said. Um, we cited some in our brief, the Desert uh, Capital case, the Cerubin case, Goldston case. If you're in a situation where there's no assessment, or the IRS is not relying on an assessment, then the IRS is just, is just proceeding as an ordinary claimant. It bears the burden of proof. It doesn't mean that the case is over, it just means that it bears the burden of proof like an ordinary claimant. Uh, and and that makes sense. Ms. Bruce says, well, we could just stamp it with assessment. But that's not what the courts have noted is the reason for the presumption of correctness. The reason for the presumption of correctness is not just because the IRS comes up with some number, but it's gone through the formal regulatory process approved and signed by the commission. So, I recognize that there's there's a timing issue here, but the burden of proof issue doesn't mean that the debtors immediately win. Only it only means that the that the IRS is not entitled to do what it's trying to do here, which is to just shift everything to the debtors. You need to prove why your why your profits are not billions of dollars. You need to prove why your losses are more than zero, and uh, that's the process. Going on to my next point, the Miss Bruce was describing. After saying, "Well, we've cited many, many cases, all of which she acknowledges are assessment cases," she said, "Well, we've we've explained our claims. We've gone through a process. We took the numbers from the debtors, then we made adjustments. I didn't hear her argue otherwise. The adjustments amount to about eight billion dollars, forty-three now twenty-four, then twenty-four now eight billion. Oops. Uh, quite." disconnected-to-reality-type claims. Because what the IRS says is, here's the $8 billion of claims. Now, you tell us why that $8 billion, or which is related to $20 billion or so of revenue and no losses, why all of that number is is not true. And that's what she said. She said, we we laid out our claim, this $8 billion number. Now, you, the debtors, substantiate otherwise. And that's exactly what the courts have said over and over again, what Judge Posner said in the Kohler case, what the Fidelity America case said in the case cited by the IRS, what many cases have said is not available. It can't be the debtor's burden to prove the negative. It has to be connected to some real actual profits, real business, real records. you have to... Look at the actual business records and do the best you can with the actual records and with the reality of the situation. And so um, in conclusion, I, I think the law here is, 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 is clear. Without an assessment, there's no presumption of correctness. The IRS says we proceed here according to the rules under the tax law, and we agree with that. The Raleigh decision says that. It's the burden of proof under tax law. And under tax law, it's very clear that if there is no assessment, the burden doesn't shift to the taxpayer. The IRS just has the burden as a normal claimant, and that's exactly what we have here. Thank you, Your
0: Honor. Is there any cases that uh, address this issue in the context of an estimation hearing?
1: Your Honor, uh, we couldn't find any. What we did find, and we found cases that stand for the same proposition that the IRS cited, which is, In estimation proceedings, you follow the same rules as if you were adjudicating a claim. So just because we're doing this in a few months and we're doing it for estimation purposes as opposed to a final adjudication on the claim, it's the same rules and the same burden of proof. But we didn't didn't find a case that that matches both the law that I found, which is in in the absence of assessments, the IRS bears the burden of proof. With an estimation proceeding that we didn't find that combination and the IRS didn't cite any either. Okay. Thank you Thank you, your honor
0: All right, I'm I'll uh, I'm gonna take the matter under under advisement. I will issue a ruling um, a bench ruling at the uh, January 31st hearing so that the parties will have An understanding of how we're going to proceed once we get to March
1: Thank you, your honor uh, do you, uh, Your Honor, uh, originally you would asked to discuss discovery at, at at this conference. I'm not sure there's a whole lot to uh, discuss because I think the parties are largely in agreement on the scope of discovery. We're, we have we have obviously some to do in the next few weeks to complete that. I, I could give Your Honor an update, or if there's no uh, disputes that want, that uh, the IRS wants to raise. Uh, I, I'm happy to just continue meeting and conferring with the IRS as Your Honor uh, pleases.
0: Well, you may just give me a brief update on how, how things are going so far, because I know there was a deadline for the debtors to produce documents.
1: Sure. Um, so um, uh, as Your Honor may recall, with the uh, objection the, uh, that the IRS submitted back in December, uh, they provided a draft set of document requests. As soon as Your Honor. Um, rule that we would have an estimation proceeding, we got immediately to responding to those uh, 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 document interrogatory and, well, it was a request to admit interrogatories and document requests. We responded to those at the end of December, um, just before the new year. We produced the documents uh, the following Friday, so we uh, uh, I think if I'm getting my dates right, it's December 29th. We responded to the uh, to, TO THE uh, WRITTEN DISCOVERY, AND THEN WE produced THE ASSOCIATED DOCUMENTS ON JANUARY 5TH. THERE WAS ONE LARGE DATABASE THAT WE PRODUCED THE FOLLOWING, uh, following WEEK. WE'VE PRODUCED ALL THE DOCUMENTS THAT THE IRS HAS REQUESTED. Um, THE IRS, um, is, I UNDERSTAND, IS STILL PROCESSING THOSE DOCUMENTS, AND THEY MAY HAVE ADDITIONAL QUESTIONS, AND I'VE TOLD THEM, OF COURSE, WE'RE HAPPY TO TALK TO THEM ABOUT THAT. Uh, it, it, ON OUR SIDE, uh, we issued um, interrogatories to set forth the nature of the IRS's claims with some explanation. I mentioned I think during the argument that the IRS responded to that on Friday, so we just got the explanation. We're going through that. We've conferred a little bit yesterday. We're going to confer tomorrow a little bit about, about those responses, what needs to be done specifically on those responses. Both sides have issued 30 deposition notices to each other. Um, We issued one to the IRS uh, a few weeks ago. The IRS just issued one to us uh, on Friday. And I think the parties agree that what we're going to do is probably gonna have to divide that up among multiple witnesses because as you might suspect, there's some people at the IRS who, who deal with domestic, some people who deal with international, and some people who deal with employment tax. The same thing is true at Ernst & Young. So we'll probably divide it up the same way, we'll probably each have three witnesses who will be deposed. Um, uh, and I think both parties have agreed that those depositions can be uh, limited or focused on the issues that are now in dispute. The IRS has, it has provided five or six, depending on how you count, um, specific issues on which it disputes the uh, debtor's position. So the depositions will be uh, addressing those issues. Um, The, in parallel, as I think your honor knows, because your honor saw the Ernst & Young witness on the stand, the IRS audit team, uh, the team from Nebraska, has been issuing information disclosure requests or information document requests to Ernst & Young on an ongoing basis ask a question. I see this tax return says this. This tax return says this. Can you tell us this? Can you give us these documents? That's been going on an ongoing basis. I think Mr. Shea said that uh, all, all but one request was going to be produced by December 15. Um, that was produced by December 15. The one outstanding request was produced, uh, I think, more recently, as he said out in the stand. Um, there has been, as we understand it, continuing uh, information disclosure requests, or IDRs, that have been propounded by the IRS team, and so Ernst & Young has been continuing to respond to those and providing those. So, I understand they produced, uh, they've provided IDR responses as late as last week because there are more recent IDRs, and I understand that there's some more that have just been issued recently uh, that um, Ernst & Young is, uh, is doing. And I, I should also mention, I think Mr. Shea testified on the stand, and it was in his declaration, that there were some adjustments that needed to be made on the earlier tax returns. He didn't think there were going to be such that they would have any impact on the tax liability, but there needed to be some adjustments. Um, That's been a subject of discussion between Ernst & Young and the IRS for some number of weeks. There was an information disclosure response served last week um, that addressed that topic in writing. I, I actually. Provided it to uh, uh, the Department of Justice uh, yesterday, Uh, and those adjustments uh, to the prior year tax returns are going to be done either later this week or early next week.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, Have we utilized uh, the services of Judge Fitzgerald uh, as a mediator at all,
1: Uh, Your Honor? We have not. In fact, the topic was discussed briefly yesterday, and we. expect to discuss the subject tomorrow. I think we're we're still discussing the question of whether it makes some sense to just have discussions uh, between the lawyers, uh, perhaps with some of the financial uh, representatives of the debtors and or IRS agents, um, rather than uh, engage a mediator who would have to get up to speed. There would be a lot of submissions. Given the time at issue, we think it may make sense to have direct discussion. But that's a discussion we we uh, anticipate having with the uh, Department of Justice tomorrow.
0: Okay, that's fine. I just want to make sure that uh, everyone's aware that it's available if you want it. So, uh, but Thank if the parties man. are talking, there's you know there's no need to uh, to use a mediator if the parties are still discussing. So, Ms. Bruce, anything from your end on the discovery issues or mediation or anything else?
2: Um, yeah, we are, you know, in favor of mediation, Your Honor. I think it could be useful. Um, you know, even if we didn't arrive at a overall number, um, it it has the potential to narrow some of the issues for trial. Uh, I think logistically, right now, one of our biggest concerns is that, I, given the, um, the the categories of adjustments and what what we have to discuss at at this stage, and we haven't stipulated to anything yet, but we, we would think probably we'd need at least three days for trial, particularly given the number of witnesses, if we have three on each side, um, you know, that that it does not seem feasible that it could be accomplished in one day. So, um, potentially mediation could be an avenue for um, uh, a, allowing us to stipulate to some issues that might save time at trial. Um, so that, that is one thought from, from our side, um, and then I just would like to address one other concern that Mr. DeLue brought up regarding the amended returns. Um, That has certainly been a a major concern that we've had uh, since the prior hearing, just that there is no finite universe of data for us. Um, And if we would ask your honor to to give the debtor some type of deadline by which they're going to provide us the information that will be used at the estimation hearing. We understand the audit is ongoing, um, and so that may be separate. But we we need to know. We, we have no idea the extent of these amendments on the returns. But that, that could be a huge change if they're amending um, two two year at least two years worth of tax returns. Um, that could change all the adjustments. Um, and you know we don't have those any information on that yet. And we won't get that until Friday or Monday. And we only have a couple weeks left of discovery. So, I mean, we'd ask that that the debtors just need to be done by by Friday when they amend the return. And that needs to be the closed universe of everything we're going to be looking at for purposes of this estimation hearing. Because um, I understand the debtors are unwilling to extend the time out. But if they keep amending their production... Um, it's just not going to be feasible to, to, uh, you know, get get reasonable numbers for for purposes of this hearing.
0: All right. Well, why don't uh, I think Mr. Liu indicated you're going to have a meet and confer tomorrow, and you discuss it at that, and see if you can come up with uh, an agreed upon schedule for when discovery will be completed. Uh, if you can't, uh, just contact chambers, and I can jump back on a call with a status conference at any time to discuss discovery issues. So. That's that's not a problem. Um, As far as the mediator goes, if you are going to use the mediator, I was uh, picking up on what Mr. Deleuze said, I would highly recommend you do it sooner rather than later if you think you're going to need the mediator, because it is going to take time for Judge Fitzgerald to get up to speed on the issues, um, and you're going to have to make submissions uh, and so forth. So uh, I would recommend you start that process as quickly as possible if you are going to use the mediator, because that's not going to slow down estimation process. We're still going to go forward on the estimation. Okay. Um, anything else? Understood. Nothing from Nothing Jay. from
2: us, Your Honor.
0: Okay. Thank you all very much. I appreciate the updates. And as I said, I'll give you my ruling on the burden of proof uh, on the 31st. Okay. Thank, Thank you, Your Honor. Honor. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. We're adjourned.